Our New Testament reading this morning is Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34, and that can be found on page 4 in your pew Bibles, the second half in the New Testament half, page 4. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put, in, put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thank you, Alicia, for reading that so helpfully and uh, clearly for us. Let's keep it open and then bow our heads as we ask God for the help uh, we need today. So, Father, our prayer is indeed that we would understand your words. We ask that your Spirit would open our eyes and change our hearts, that we might indeed be those who seek your kingdom and your righteousness as first in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. On September the 15th, 2008, the investment bank... Lehman Brothers collapsed, sending shockwaves through the global financial system and beyond. Just two weeks later, on the 29th of September, the stock market in America fell a staggering 777 points in interday trading, the biggest drop in history, and the worst economic disaster ever in America since the Great Depression. As the stock market plummeted, a staggering $8 trillion was wiped off the U.S. economy. And Americans lost a staggering $9.8 trillion in wealth 
as their home values plummeted and their retirement accounts were vaporized. One leading uh, analyst commented this, it was such a shock to the economic system that it unleashed dynamics that we still don't fully understand. A few people had been aware that this was likely to happen. They'd predicted an imminent crash. What they did was very wise as they took their money out of the American economy into a safe haven investments, Bermuda v. Seychelles or Jersey or Hong Kong. But it was a financial heart attack and the effects of the loss were devastating. And it's all about risk volatility and safe investments that Jesus is teaching us this morning as we continue our sermon series from the Sermon on the Mount. Because as we reach verse 19 of chapter 6, it's very clear that we are in the world of investment, bonds, and securities. As Jesus in verse 19 says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And therefore, in his love for us this morning, Jesus has four penetrating questions. And we're going to ask them one after the other as he tries to explain to us the importance of a single-minded devotion to him. Here's the first question, a question then of investment. Verse 19, where is your treasure? In the days before Santander or Univest and hard currency, there were no accounts or banks or safety deposit boxes to place your wealth. So treasure was physical. It was physically held and physically stored. And the treasure that Jesus is talking about here could well have been fine linen or grain, fine jewels or silver or gold coins. And all of that treasure would have been stored in the family's storehouse, which was the room we thought about last week where we were to go and pray, a room without windows and just one door at the center of the house. But as you stored your treasure, be it the linen or the grain or the gold coins, in that room, you would have known in the ancient world that it was not completely secure. Physical goods were prone to physical deterioration. And so in verse 19, Jesus identifies three clear and present dangers. First, moth. I discovered three new holes in my sweater this last week, the moth had struck again. But in the ancient world, if it was fine linen you were storing, that really was a serious threat to your assets. The second threat he identifies is rust, literally in the original, the eating, meaning vermin. Because if there's an infestation of rats or mice, it would ruin your livelihoods devalue the assets, or devour your own food supply for winter. And then thirdly, thieves that break in. And in Jesus' day, houses were made of muds, 
brick or bricks made of muds. And therefore, it would have been very easy to literally break in with your fist through the uh, wall. And that's the picture here, uh, uh, literally breaking and entering at night to head into that room and take your silver. Of course, you're thinking we're a more sophisticated generation, but still today we know the same vulnerability, don't we? We go to great lengths in order to keep our stuff safe. We lock our cars, install burglar alarms, place our valuables in a safety deposit box, we secure our investments in a hedge fund and develop a complex identity code system for online banking. But your assets are never completely safe. The law of entropy is relentless. Wood rots and devices break, threads fray, metal rusts, inflation devalues, investments decline, and precious valuables are lost. So the proud new owner of the shiny BMW, as he, as he drives it uh, out of the forecourt, must be aware of the fact that it loses its first $10,000 worth of worth in that first ride, the most expensive of his life. And that car, the pride and joy of his life, will get scratched or dented. It will rust and devalue. And if you don't own a BMW, don't worry, it's the same for your house or that stunning new dress that you bought or the iPhone 14 that you own. And even if they do retain their value, they hold no value in eternity because you can't take the BMW or the gold Rolex watch or the iPhone 14 beyond the grave. The story is told of a rich financial guy on Wall Street. He'd made billions on the markets and he died. And as guests gathered for his funeral, one of them at the back of the church was overheard to ask another, so how much did Bill leave? The answer was instant. All of it. Job writes, naked you came into the world, and naked you will leave. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here, to be clear, Jesus is not condemning private ownership or even wealth funds or savings or pension investments. Indeed, in the Old Testament, those who save for a future so as to be not reliant on others, so as to give generously are commended. There's nothing wrong with owning assets. But the picture here is of a storing up which implies a, a selfish amassing of wealth I do not need. It's the parable of the rich fool as he stores his grain and then has more grain than he can work with and stores more grain in bigger barns and bigger barns for more grain as he hoards it, Scrooge-like. Here's the question. It's not, do you have money? It's, does money have you? Because while the focus on amassing wealth is obsessive and golem-like, it actually ends up consuming my heart. The guy obsessed with wealth 
is obsessed with making money and then managing money and then guarding money, a pattern of life which Jesus says denies eternal realities. Uh, One commentator puts it like this, Jesus' warning here is thus not specifically against ill-gotten wealth, but about possessions as such, which, however neutral in their character, can become a focus of concern and greed which competes with the disciples' loyalty with God himself. The principle of materialism is in inevitable conflict with the kingdom of God's. So your financial advisor will tell you to widen the portfolio, not to put all your eggs in one basket and to hedge your bets. Jesus is directly contradicting that this morning as he instructs us, indeed commands us to invest in the bank of heaven. We need enough to provide for our families and our future and to pay our taxes. But beyond that, Jesus is calling us today to a radical new investment into the kingdom of God. The ultimate safe haven. There, there is no theft, no decay, no depreciation in value. In heaven, your investment is eternal and your returns are secure. What is this? treasure of heaven then. Well, in Isaiah chapter 33, the stable treasure of the fear of the Lord is compared with the short-term triumph of Jerusalem's enemies. And there's a hymn that speaks of that. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. For in the Bible, heaven is a picture of Jesus himself. So to invest in heaven is to live for Jesus Christ alone. And we do this as we give generously to his people, as we give generously to the work of the kingdom in evangelism and mission, and as we give generously to our church so that the work of the gospel amongst us might continue unhindered. For to store treasure in heaven is to live a life of growing godliness in Christ-likeness of character. It is to allow the Spirit of Jesus to fill me as his word transforms me. It is to serve generously as I give to brothers and sisters in needs, as I engage in evangelism and give financially to the church and to mission that the gospel of Jesus might spread to the ends of the earth. Is this your priority? It's easy to duck the question, where's your treasure? But actually Jesus makes that impossible for us this morning because in verse 21, he moves from the plural you to the singular you. The you in verse 21 is singular, which means the challenge is for me personally. Where's your treasure personally today is his question. Yet the answer is not to give your money to Jesus. It's to give him your heart. 
because so many people come to church each Sunday and sing the hymns and say the confession and pray the Lord's Prayer, but actually leave each week with a heart that is hardened and a life that is unchanged. Queen Elizabeth I famously once said, we don't make windows into men's souls. But actually, the window is being made into our soul on this question. For the question of where we put our treasure actually reveals a far more interesting and fundamental issue, which is our second question and our second challenge, a question of vision, how is your eyesight? For where we put our treasure will actually expose what we see. A question of vision, verse 22. For the eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of lights. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness well, I said to Sarah just this week, I do need a desperately urgent um, eye checkup uh, because my eyesight is definitely getting worse. The moment I realized that was when I drove just the other week without realizing it on the British side of the road. Um, and I looked ahead to this imbecile who was coming towards me thinking, why doesn't he shift over? At that very moment, I realized I was on the wrong side of the road, so swerved to avoid him. It was extraordinarily terrifying. But I do need to see the eye uh, doctor soon. In verse 22 then, we are at the optician, if you like, for our annual eyesight test. You know the drill, the room is dark, the letters are lit up. Um, your left eye, now check your right eye, and then they ask you, how's your vision? But here the question is more critical because the eye says Jesus is the lamp to the body. The sense then is that the eye, if you like, is the organ which gives light and therefore direction to the whole of life. That is, the whole course of my life is directed by what the eye sees. So if my vision is clear, the whole direction of my life, spiritually speaking, will be good and right. But if I'm myopic, that is to say, if my sight is blurry, if I'm, if I'm short-sighted, then the whole course of my life will be off course, spiritually speaking. Indeed, I'll be in darkness. This, then, is the reason why so many do not invest in the kingdom of heaven but live just for treasure on earth. It is because they don't see heaven. They don't see Jesus. We don't understand the beauty of his rule and the grace and mercy of his love. It's dim and blurry. So many Christians live like this. Jesus, I see him, but in the peripheral vision, or ahead, but it's, it's very, very blurry because I'm myopic with my spiritual cataracts. And all I can see is the stuff in my life right now. Indeed, the Greek word that Jesus uses in verse 22 for goods is the Greek word undistracted and single-minded. So that the mark of this healthy eye is I'm focused wholeheartedly on Jesus 
and his rule, not double-minded, distracted, or compromised. For the reason for this spiritual myopia is not that people can't see, it's that we won't see, because the things of this life are more attractive to us than the claims of Jesus Christ. Surely the most absurd animal in all of English uh, literature is uh, Dr. Doolittle's funny little animal, the push-me-pull-you. Uh, if you don't know of it, it's uh, one animal, a bit like a donkey, but it has two heads and therefore two minds, two brains. And the push-me-pull-you can't really decide on which direction to head in because one head wants to push this way, but the other is insisting it goes the other way in a perpetual tug of war in the push-me-pull-you. It's funny, but there are so many Christians like that. James calls them the double-minded. For with my mouth I profess Jesus as Lord, but in my heart I live for this life and this world. This question of investment, where's your treasure, is really a question of vision. How's your eyesight? But it becomes really a question of ownership. Verse 24, who is your master? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now that statement in verse 24 appears at first instance to be demonstrably not true. There are plenty of people who have two jobs, they're part-time in both, and they moonlight. But the picture that Jesus paints here is not taken from the American employment markets but from the ancient world of slavery. And in the ancient world of slavery, the master would buy you outright and own you in his sole possession. So in Roman law, the slave or bond slave was considered the property of the Roman citizen. They had no rights to leave that place of service and could even be killed with impunity by their owner. They were chattel. And that's the picture Jesus paints here. Effectively, there are two slaveries. It's A or B, one or the other, black or white, God or literally mammon. In John Milton's epic poem that I studied at school called Paradise Lost, mammon is the name of the fallen angel on a par with Satan himself. But that's not what Jesus means here. Mammon doesn't really have a negative connotation here at all. There's nothing dark or sinister about the word mammon. It just means wealth and money, property and prosperity. Literally, the word mammon means the trusted thing. It means the thing in which you put your trust. If you like, the place of my security. If you like, the thing I trust in 
with my future. And what Jesus is saying is you cannot trust both God and mammon. Make up your mind who you will trust. Is it the God who made you, who loves you and has redeemed you through the saving death of Jesus at the cross? Or will it be in material possessions and financial security here on earth? Because if we put our trust in money, wealth, and possessions, it's impossible to simultaneously trust in God's. Because what is money? Have you ever thought about that? Money is power. Money is the power to be self-sufficient. Money is the power to be able to look after myself. I can't both trust in that and simultaneously in God, which is why in Deuteronomy 6, as the people headed into the land, they were commanded not to trust in their wealth and abandon their trust in God. Listen to what was read to the people. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God in not keeping his commands and judgments and statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, that your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the land of bondage, who brought you through that great and terrible wilderness in which there were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty lands with no water, who brought water for you out of the rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna. When you have wealth, don't trust in it, says Moses, but remember that all things come from the Lord's because he is the one who provides for us out of his goodness and grace. Augustine makes the point that we are carried through this world by our loves. What is it then that we love? Is it God our master? Or the other thing, money, wealth, prosperity, independence? Be careful, Jesus teaches. And I think the place this comes out in all of its color probably is that moment in Pilgrim's Progress where Bunyan understands this so clearly as Christian and hopeful cross the plain of ease. And as they clear the plain of ease, moving quickly, understanding that this life is to be full of trouble and difficulty, they come to the side of the plain of ease and then face another danger, a hill called Luca. In the hill, we're told there was a silver mine, enticing and extraordinary, where it is said one can dig with little effort and find rich reward. Because Luca stands for the prosperity of this world, especially money and wealth. And the silver mine is the enticing prospect of wealth and worldly success for all who want to live the life of ease. Christian is worried. He sees and he asks, and he calls out, not I, I've heard of this place before, 
and hear that many have been slain, and that beside that treasure is a snare to those that seek it, for it hinders them in their pilgrimage. And he calls out to Demas, the miner, is not this place dangerous? Has it not hindered many people in their pilgrimage? Not very dangerous, except to those that are careless, said hopeless. Then Christian says, let us not stir a step, but keep on our way. For you cannot serve two masters. Either you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus says, we cannot serve both God's and the trusted thing, mammon. If we're honest, though, this is frightening to us. This idea of not building up stuff on earth and treasure on earth, but actually investing in the bank of heaven is frightening to us because we worry and we think, will I really have enough and be looked after if I live this radical kingdom lifestyle? And that's why, lastly, Jesus turns to the final question, a question of provision, verse 25. Who will you trust? Anxiety disorders are incredibly common in the U.S. Over 40 million adults in America, that's 19%, have an anxiety disorder. And the use of antidepressants has increased 35% from 2016 to 2022. Perhaps that's quite a painful um, illustration for some here today who really do struggle for very good reasons, perhaps, um, with anxiety. But it is to this area of worry and anxiety that Jesus now turns us this morning. And the command is clear as he says, do not worry. That word worry is an interesting Greek word that is made from two Greek uh, different words. Uh, The word is merimnano, and it comes from two words, merizo, to divide, and nos, meaning mind. It's a very good word for anxiety or worry. What is anxiety and what is worry? but it is a divided mind. So I'm trying to get on with my day, but I can't really get on with my day. I I can't concentrate on the now because my mind is divided between the now and the worry of that thing in the future. I'm trying to get on with today and concentrate on my work, but I can't really do that because half my mind is on this, but the other half is on the other thing for which I am anxious. This split mind leads to a half-life. I can never really enjoy the now or do the now because of the anxiety about the future. And this split mind actually leads to a split heart. I can't really live fully for Jesus because half my heart's is absorbed in the worry. Now, in the ancient world, there were lots of things that they would have worried about. A failed harvest, thus no income. 
Perhaps that the robber would break in and steal the treasure, thus nothing left. Perhaps for us it's not as, as crude as that, and yet don't we worry about our health and that lump, or our kids' future, or our own income and job security, or the future of the economy, or the future of the nation? Are you worried? Because Jesus is an excellent pastor. And what he does now is he gives us that command, don't worry, is he doesn't get out the baseball bat and threaten. But he gives us great reasons, if you like, to relieve us of the burden of our care. Both come from the world of nature. Verse 26 and verse 28. Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. The point, says Jesus, as we're in the hide, looking at the birds, is the bird, the robin, it doesn't go farming or sow seed in the spring or get the combine harvester out in September or October. And yet, this little bird is fed. And I watched in awe, actually, in Idaho this summer on the, on the lake we were on, as this, this golden eagle, it was extraordinary, flew down from this tree, swooped into the lake, and then found a fish, and then took it back to the nest. You could almost see the little heads of the chicks um, eating away. But the, the eagle just moved in, found the fish, the father provided it, and uh, off it went back to the nest. Look at the birds, says Jesus. Verse 28, we move, if you like, from the hides to the florist's shop. Um, look at the flowers. Why are you worried about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin or thread for cloth. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these. Worry is understandable for atheists. Of course they're concerned at COP22 because they don't believe in a sustainer God. Yet so often we live as practical atheists, as we worry, as we fret. What will I eat and what will I wear and about the future? And Jesus says, don't worry, for there's a father up above and he's looking down in love and he always provides for his precious children, his people. The Puritans had a saying, providence <clears throat> is a soft pillow for anxious heads. Is your head anxious this morning? If so, allow it to fall on the soft pillow of the providence and sovereign protection and grace and love of God. What is it you're worried about? Take it to God and trust him for it. Of course, we find this hard to do the next five to 10 or 15 to 20 years. How can I trust him for all of that? The answer is you're not called upon to do so. Have a look at the verse uh, that Jesus gives us towards the end, our final verse, verse 33. You're not called upon to trust Jesus for all of your future in 50-year installments just 24 hours at a time. 
Sufficient each day, says Jesus, is the trouble therein. There is more than enough trouble to handle today. And therefore, the call of God is to trust him today. We're not called to live in 50-year installments, but in 24-hour installments. The trouble will be given today. Isn't that interesting? So the provision of grace will be given today. So what trouble are you facing? Trust him for it today. Yet we find living like this so difficult. I lived for a few years in the English city of Bristol, which was home in Victorian times to a missionary called George Muller, who founded schools and orphanages. These institutions were model homes. In the brutality of Victorian England, he provided tender cares. He clothed and fed and educated Christians and children who had no hope without him. And every penny was raised by him himself. And the biography is extraordinary as he trusted God's miraculous provision for the care of these children. Listen to this extract. Night was falling over the harbour of Bristol, and in the orphanage that uh, George Muller and his wife had founded, the children were getting ready for beds. George was working in his study when his wife arrived with alarming news. We're out of milk, she said. There isn't enough milk for the morning oatmeal. George laid aside his pen. This wasn't the first time that money needed to buy food for the orphans was tight. The Mullers took in their first group in 1836, and their orphanage now housed over 100. From the word go, he resolved never to ask for funds or to borrow, but to trust God alone. He said, Mary, let's pray. Two employees joined them as together they made their humble but necessary request to God as tiny helpless mouths were depending on them for sustenance. Be assured if you walk with him and look to him and expect from him, George reminded them afterwards, he will never fail you. As soon as he finished praying, somebody knocked at the door. Mary hurried, and there was somebody standing with an envelope. It's a letter, George. Hurry up and open it. Enclosed was a sum of money, more than enough for the milk. Within two minutes, two more letters arrived with money and pledges of support. It is, verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added as well. A question of investment, where is your treasure, really is a question of vision. How's your eyesight? Do you see the kingdom of Jesus? It becomes a question of ownership. Who is your master? Who will you serve, the trusted thing, mammon, or Christ? But it all hinges, doesn't it, on a question of provision. Will you trust the Lord Jesus Christ and that God your Father will always provide that you may serve his kingdom forever? Our final hymn speaks to us of the sovereign provision of God's. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, the promise of a God who provides. Let's stand and sing it together. <laughs>